Open your Bible, please, to John chapter 17, John chapter 17. And if you did not get a worksheet, but you would like to have a worksheet to follow along and jot some notes down, uh, you want to raise your hand and maybe I could get some men that would be prepared to distribute those to those that missed out on that coming in the auditorium. All right, they're coming down the aisle now. Very good. John chapter 17 is where we're going to look briefly tonight. Last week, if you remember, we, we started a two-part lesson, and, and really, if I, if I were able, I'd like to stretch it out over three uh, sessions rather than two, so tonight I'm going to try to speed it up and compress a little bit. Generally speaking, our Wednesday night crowd is our cream of the crop, is what preachers would say. It's usually people that are serious about church life and Bible study, etc. So I'm going to take for granted that you already know the basics and maybe all of it. And so it's more of a reminder. And so I'm going to presume that you understand a lot of material. I'm just trying to draw it together and unite the church in a very serious and a very important area of our sanctification. Last Wednesday night, if you remember, we looked at Psalm 119, and the psalmist said, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? And we learned just from that one statement alone that there is, <clears throat> there's a responsibility there, meaning every one of us are responsible for how we live our life. You may trip over a stumbling block, no doubt about it. Somebody may trip you up in life. It might be your family. It might be a church member. It might be your pastor. It might be a boss. It might be a neighbor. It could be a, anybody can trip you up. And so we're not looking at sinless perfection. We're talking about a lifestyle. But when you continue to live on the ground, you have no more excuse Every one of us have the ability to get up and stand up for Jesus Christ if we want to. There lies the problem. And so we have a responsibility. The blame game is for children, and hopefully we mature past that and learn to assume responsibility for our own actions and our own lifestyles. We also learn that we need resources, meaning wherewithal. We need the wherewithal to conquer sin. You know and I know that when we fall into sin, the Bible says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Bible says, whoso confesseth and forsaketh shall find mercy. God is a merciful God. He doesn't give us what we deserve, no doubt about it. But we can lose the blessings of God by living in continual sin. And so obviously we want to get it cleaned up as soon as possible. But then not only that, but we want to build in some protection for us so that we don't ask God to forgive us over and over and over and over for the same violations. Does that make sense? In fact, there's some in here that would, they're not going to say what, but they would, they would know what I'm speaking of anyway, that there's times you get tired of asking God to forgive you for the same thing. And so you just let it slide because it's like, God doesn't believe me anyway. And quite frankly, I don't know if I believe me. I am genuinely sorry. I really want to get over this. 
And, and so I ask God to forgive me. So what we need to do is our wherewithal needs to extend to protection. Otherwise, it's good to have a hospital at the bottom of a cliff to help those that fall off. But it would also be wise to build a fence at the top of the cliff to prevent people from falling. Does that not make sense? And that's what we're dealing with. That's where standards come in. And standards have, have been neglected, in my humble opinion, for the last decade plus. And part of the reason is, is because of the abuse and the misuse of standards. That's my opinion. You don't have to agree. Generally speaking, in fundamentalism, we swing from one extreme to the other. We, we, we say, this is wrong, this is wrong, and not only that, but we say, this is what God says. And, and hear me clearly, standards are man-made. They're based on biblical principles, but they're man-made, and they are designed for the intention to protect me, to keep my convictions. And so we looked closely at three major terms that get used interchangeably and sometimes misunderstood. Principles are God's truths that never change. It doesn't make any difference where you're located. Geography doesn't change them. If it's right in Illinois, it's right in Moscow, Russia. Does that make sense? If it's wrong in Chicago, it's wrong in Palm Beach, Florida. And if it changes in those locations, then it's not a principle. It's a preference at best. A principle doesn't change regardless of dispensation. If it was right for Abraham, it's right for Bruce Humbert. Time doesn't change principles. God's word is established forever, O Lord. Thy word is settled in heaven. It doesn't change. Principles don't change because of geography or dispensation or acceptance or familiarity. It, it, they just don't change. When we choose to govern our life by principles, those principles now become convictions. When we say we have many convictions, truth be known, we don't have as many as we boast of. Because a conviction is a truth that I govern my life by. Not that I say that I believe. The devils believe most of what you and I believe. They can quote scripture better than many of you. But just because we say we believe something doesn't mean we govern our life by it. When we govern our life by it, then it becomes a conviction. And we want to be people that are governed by principles. We want to be people of conviction. But even the best saint in this room knows the weakness of the flesh. In fact, the holier you are, the more wretched you understand your flesh is. When people say, I'm not so bad. I think I've done a pretty good job. You mark it down. They really are not people of conviction. People that are trying to walk in the light. 
When the light of Jesus Christ is shed on your heart and your life, you will say like the Apostle Paul, oh, wretched man that I am. The holiest people are the ones that distrust their flesh the most. And because of that, they want to build a fence at the top of the hill rather than continuously checking in at the emergency room at the hospital day after day after day. That's what standards are for. Standards are man-made rules based on Scripture, man-made rules for the intent and purpose of protecting my convictions. Are we all together so far? Does that make sense? Last week I showed you because they're different, standards do change. We Baptists don't like to say that. And, and we're fearful that the young people will say, okay, well, we're going to change them. Well, what we need to do is exhibit a godly life with our young people and hope and pray that they will have a, an appetite to be holy. Does that make sense? Because if they genuinely want to have a, a close relationship with God, they will also want to build walls of protection. They're going to be fighting with that battle more so than some adults, and certainly those who have been saved for 40, 50 years, hopefully, because most of us old folks, we've been burnt in the flesh. We have wandered off, maybe not ruined our lives, but we've gone down the wrong path and, and we suffered consequences. And so that adds passion to our preaching. Don't do that. Don't do that. Why? We've been hurt. We've been burnt. We've been, and young people often say, but we haven't. And so they don't have an understanding. Can I remind you as adults, grandparents and parents alike, you don't love your kids any more than God does. And you reaching into the bag for extreme measures to keep your kids to do right, you're just setting them up for future failure. If there's any time in life you want them to fail, it's when they're under your roof. So many of our kids are made to live a Christian life and they are groomed to be Pharisees. And then when they leave home to go to college, and can I say it nicely, even Bible college, some of the most wicked people I have ever met were in Bible college. I could not believe it. I told my dad, do you know my roommate did this, this, and this? He said, I never said you were going to be with all Christians. I just said you were going to a Bible college. Don't judge the college by the failures of students. You're going there to learn more about the Lord and His Word and specifically the ministry to equip you to do the work of the ministry. But if you're looking for a loophole to live a sinful life, you don't have to go to Bible college to do that. You can stay right here and do that. Otherwise, if you're looking for a loophole, young people, to live carnal lives, have at it. You're going to find out that what we as older folks have been teaching and preaching, it's not old-fashioned. It's not the Baptist belief. It's what God says. Amen. We're just trying to help you. 
You want to go get hurt? I'm going to, I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to hurt far worse than you can imagine. Now, you think you know everything, but could I appeal, especially to teenagers? I'm going to be preaching at youth camp next week, so i got to practice a little bit tonight because I don't know that teenagers will listen to an old guy. I'm just hoping because I'm cool looking, they'll still listen to what I have to say. It would be like a teenager, a 17-year-old, 16-year-old teenager trying to explain to a five-year-old why girls are good looking. And that five-year-old's going to go, gross. Now, I'm not comparing you to a five-year-old. That's one. I want to make sure you understand that. But let's, let's be real here. Someone that's 30 years older than you is going to know a whole lot more about life than you. You might even be gifted intellectually, but you haven't gone through life yet. You read the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the greatest books in all the Bible. And he, he goes through every enjoyment in the flesh, and he basically says, even the good things in the flesh, the non-sinful things in the flesh, it all comes out meaning nothing. It won't mean a thing in eternity. Even good work. Now, he doesn't say quit working. In fact, he says enjoy the fruit of your labor. Go for it. There's some good in it. But bottom line, doesn't mean a thing in eternity. Only fearing the Lord, only obeying God's word will rack up rewards in heaven and in this life. This life. You want your best life now? Fear God. Obey His Word. So tonight, what I want to do, I've gotten off course because I'm trying to summarize it. You don't know because you only got this little sheet here. I've got 35 pages to run through. And so we're not going to take longer tonight than I should. And I am watching the clock. God wants you and I to be in the world but not of the world. Does that make sense? In fact, the reason why he wants us to be in the world is because what the world needs is in us, Jesus Christ. And yet at the same time, Jesus knows that your flesh is going to be drawn to the sin of the world because your old nature still wants to sin. The godliest man you see in this room has to fight with sin. The woman you look up to and say, boy, I'd like to be a good Christian lady like her. She has an old nature that she has to fight with regularly. We are tempted every moment, the good book says, daily. And so it's not easy street for any of us. We're in a spiritual warfare. Now, the good news is if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. So it's not like we're doomed we're just going to have a headache an awful lot because the devil hates us. And so God wants you to be in the world. Some think, well, if I could just get away from everybody, you're still going to sin. 
Because your sin starts right here in the head. And then it, the desires of the flesh, you start twisting it, how you can satisfy the desires of your flesh and the desires of your flesh God created you with. It's just that we want to satisfy the desires of the flesh like the world rather than what God says. And that's where it becomes sin. And that's where it becomes very detrimental. God wants us to have principles or wants us to know the principles, have convictions, build standards. Now, let's look in John 17. We're going to read verses 13 through 20. Those of you that are familiar with this passage of Scripture, this is on the eve of the Lord's crucifixion. He's going to, while everyone else go to bed and get seven, eight hours of sleep, he's going to be up all night long. He's going to endure six unfair trials. He's going to be falsely accused and condemned to die. And the next morning, he's going to be hanging on a cross about noontime. So prior to that, he slips away into the garden to pray. We're going to pick up in the middle of his prayer in verse number 13. And he says, now I come to thee, these things I speak in the world that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Did you catch that? If you're not joyful tonight, it's not God's fault. And quite frankly, it's not your mate's fault. Quite frankly, it's not your children's fault. It's not your neighbor's fault. It's not your political leader's fault. Too many people look to people for joy. And in marriages, so often I try to help young couples. The truth of the matter is, a man cannot put that burden on his wife for her to be the source of his joy. No woman should ever depend on her husband to be the source of her joy. Don't misunderstand that statement. God says a man that finds a wife finds a good thing. A wife is a gift from the Lord, but she's the blessing not the blesser. And if you put your attention on her for the source of blessings, God's going to say, okay, have at it. See what she does for you. Just like the manna in the wilderness. They thought, wow, this is good. So they started hoarding it up. What happened? The next day it stank. Why? They were wanting more the blessing rather than Loving the blesser. You think your kids are your greatest source of joy? Your children can bring you the greatest source of sorrow that you'll ever experience. And you think, well, they're good now. Some of the greatest sorrow I've seen in adults come from adult children. I'm just saying, if you're unhappy today and you don't have joy in your life, it's because your eyes are focused on someone or something other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I'm praying for them that their joy would be fulfilled. Look in verse 14, I have given them thy word and the world hath hated them because they are not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. 
They are not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them, separate them unto you. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone. Isn't this not a precious verse, class? But for them also, which shall believe on me through their word. Do you understand? He's praying for us. The night of his crucifixion, the eve before his crucifixion, Jesus is praying for you. Wow. I don't know about you, but that's pretty impressive. Look in verse 20 again. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Not only does God expect, not only does God command, Not only does God desire for us to stay clean in a dirty world, he prays for us to stay clean. So tonight, I want to just cover three principles slash convictions. I'm going to presume this audience would agree with me that the principles I mentioned tonight ought to be made convictions if they are not already. Convictions, a truth that I govern my life by. And these three principles will really be the foundation of every principle in God's Word. And so I'm not saying these are the only principles in God's Word or the only convictions that you and I will have. But I think when we're done, you will agree with me, these sure serve as a foundation for every other, every other conviction or principle in God's Word. And we're going to try to build standards to protect them. Father, would you help me tonight to be clear in my teaching, not to be condescending in any way, help me to be careful with my sarcasm so as not to hurt people. I certainly don't want the carnal-minded man in here to think that I would even for a moment give him a license to sin as so many preachers, abominable preachers, preach today that grace allows us to fulfill the desires of the flesh. That is a lie from hell. Father, we would never even think that for a moment. I don't know that how a saved man could even think that. Paul addressed that for us. Should we sin that grace may abound, he said? God forbid. That's the furthest thing from your mind. But Father, I'm going to presume tonight that your people have a desire in their heart to live holy lives. And yet, Father, we struggle. You know us. We're just flesh. We're weak. And so tonight, help us to see the value and importance of building standards. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The first principle or conviction that I want to uh, 
build standards for tonight, Psalm 101, it's the principle of attention. The principle of attention. Psalm 101 verse 3 says, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. That is a loaded verse. And because of time, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on each of these thoughts because I want you to help me in a moment build some standards. But this principle says that I'm going to focus on that which is clean and pure and right. I think all of us would be mature enough to recognize you can hardly go to the store and not see immodesty. It's hard to, especially today, it's just... It's becoming like a mission field. America is just waking up to what our missionaries have been enduring for decades. Nudity, uh, homosexuality, swearing. I mean, you can hardly even turn on the TV when we, when we go to Europe. Germany, France, it's just not safe. You almost have to have a missionary tell you what channel you can watch. Because for them, there's just no, no curbing whatsoever, no protection. You think hearing one or two swear words is something in Europe? It's horrible. And yet, God says, I don't want you to focus on it. Don't dwell on it. One man said, you can't stop a bird from landing on your head, but you can stop them from building a nest. Does that make sense? I mean, you walk by and you see someone immodestly dressed. You don't have to keep admiring the work of God, of God, how he created that person. That's what he's talking about. I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. Sometimes it's thrown in front of you, but he's talking about what you choose to look at, what you choose to focus on. Think of how many have fallen into sensual desires like David and Samson because of what they looked at and set their attention on. Think of Lot and Achan and Demas. We don't think anything of it here in America. They got corrupt because they were focusing on the materialism of the world. And yet we think nothing of it in the church of the living God. Uh, We just look at things and look at things, the the life of the rich and the famous, and that's why so many are unhappy with what they got. They want more. And then they get more, and that still doesn't satisfy them. Why not? Because their focus is on materialism. Wouldn't you like to be set free from that stuff? Wouldn't you like to just be happy and just enjoy life? then what we focus on has a lot to do with it. When I believe this principle, I'm going to develop the conviction that God expects me, yea, commands me, to look only on clean and pure and right things. And I'm going to govern my life by it. I will not look at the nakedness or the sensual attractions or immoral activities and licentious that the world sets before me. I'm not going to look and focus on possessions and materialism and achievement that the world says I have to have 
in order to be happy. I don't need any of that to be happy. But because I know my flesh is weak, i got to build standards for my life. And as a parent, I build standards for my children. And as a pastor, I build standards for my church. I mentioned last night, I confessed my sin to this church that I often wear shorts. I've never seen anything wrong with it. I didn't know it was wrong until until I become a fundamental, independent, narrow-minded, King James only, red letter edition, no fun Baptist. And so in my church, I have people that, that take great offense if, if I would wear shorts publicly. And so I don't wear them. That, that's because of the next principle I'm going to talk about. But I'm going to tell you, as a pastor, the bigger the crowd the higher the standard. Does that make sense? That's why Bible colleges have such extreme uh, rules and standards. And young people, they say, oh, I can't believe they make us do that. Yeah, why don't you join the Marines? Give it a rest. You're sounding like a three-year-old. Wah, wah, wah. Did God call you into the ministry or not? And if wearing a a certain outfit is that difficult for you, I got news for you. You will never make it in the ministry. You're going to face greater challenges than what you have to wear if you're in the ministry. When you go, you're going to boot camp. And when you're overseeing hundreds, thousands of students... You've got to have higher standards. Why is that? Because you lower them down to where you and Dr. Childs and I, we understand a lot of things. He'll say, well, what do you want to do? Well, I don't care. Do what you want to do. Well, if I said that to a teenager, all right, preacher said, do what I want to do. Does that make sense? Do you see that? I'm trying to teach you to where you can understand why we have these standards. But when I have this attention principle established as a a standard in my life, I'm not going to look at certain things. I don't care if you say it's okay or not. And I've given you a lot of references to look up later on. But you know some of the standards. What are some of the standards people have that that you know of that would protect this principle? I'll give you one. I don't watch R-rated movies. Well, let's just, I don't watch X-rated movies. You say, well, that's obvious. You think? To hear some preachers, grace covers that. Some might have a standard. I don't watch R-rated movies. Some might have a standard. I don't watch PG-13 movies or PG movies. G movies only. Some might have a standard. I don't watch any movies. Now, who's right? Well, I can tell you, X-rated movies, that's not, even, that's not even a standard. That's a command. We're not to look at nakedness. That's, that's a clear command. That's a principle. That doesn't change. So to help me avoid seeing that, I'm going to build standards that's going to give me a buffer zone so I don't come close to that. That's what a standard is for. Help me out. What are some other things that we can do to build standards? Talk to me. 
worldly music, okay? I'm not going to listen to it, all right? Body, I'm sorry? Modest dress. Very good. For one, I don't want anyone to look at me with bad thoughts. Good. Someone else. How about language? How about TV filters? How about internet filters? Would those not be standards? Now, I don't have a filter on mine. So does that make me less spiritual than you? But if you're even coming close to that, you should, and you're trying to avoid it, are you with me? Otherwise, you've got to be honest with yourself. You've got to build standards. If you have a gambling, strong gambling desire, some won't go to the horse races. But is there anything wrong with going and watching a bunch of horses run circles? I'm just saying, you and I need to build standards to protect this principle, this conviction, if it is, that I'm not going to set anything before my eyes so that I don't even have to go through the temptation. Make sense? Number two, second principle, which will help us even more so, the principle of ambassadorship. Colossians 3.17 says, And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, We are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. This principle says, I represent the Lord Jesus Christ to everyone I meet. Everywhere I go. Boy, that puts a lot of things in check, does it not? We are ambassadors for Christ. You are the best reflection of Jesus that somebody knows. This principle helps me conform to the likeness of Jesus Christ. This helps me to be an effective witness to the lost, to maintain proper relationships with fellow Christians. A decade ago or longer, teens used to wear bracelets or wear T-shirts with WWJD. Do you remember that? Of course, our crowd found a way to preach against that too. But this was the effort of young people that were trying to remind themselves of a standard What would Jesus do? Or like the Apostle Paul, what he said. He said, all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. Uh, I don't think it's a sin to wear shorts. But if I know it's going to offend somebody, I'm going to cover up my ugly skinny leg. It's not like they're attractive legs. I mean, they only grow hair on one side. They're really kind of weird. I don't care about that stuff, but if it's offensive, well, then I'm, so I tell my church members, if you catch me out in the yard in my shorts, that's your problem. You pull in the driveway, I'll go in the house, and I'll dress so as not to be a stumbling block to you. When we have church picnics, I ask the people not to wear shorts. You know why? We're not there to be comfortable. We're really not there for activity. 
we're there for fellowship. Now we're going to play softball. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Now, if you all wear shorts, that's your business. I'm just saying it hard because I learned as a pastor, if I say shorts are okay, especially for boys, then we have girls coming in with shorts. And then one, one wears one here. Next thing you know, they're up here. And next thing you know, they're up here. And next thing you know, we got saran wrap. And so for me, it's just, let's just have a high wall. Standard. Get it down. We're going to wear it. And so some of the men, man, it's so hot. And I said, well, then don't play softball. If it's too hot for you, don't play softball. Sit in the shade with us old people. You know what? They go play softball anyway. It's all in their head. I don't like it either. I'm going to wear shorts every time I can. But I try to be careful so as not to be a stomach. Why? Because I represent Jesus Christ to everyone, everywhere. And if it's going to be offensive, I want to, I'm not going to have one person in the church govern the whole church. Does that make sense? You got one baby in the church and they're usually intentionally a baby and they complain about everything. It's just better to offend them and let them leave. I'm talking about as a pastor that's watching the entire body. He's trying to set a standard that's going to help the entire church. Not for one niche of the church, for the whole body. And I don't want to offend the whole body just so somebody can enjoy a couple of hours of cool eggs. Practicing this principle affects our attitude, actions, attire, and activities. And I think we get out what time? Eight o'clock, and it's one minute till, so I'm going to have to just speed through this. So, <clears throat> but would you do me a favor? Somebody develop a, a Sunday school lesson or devotion on this principle right here? Because if you're an ambassador for Christ, it's going to impact your attitude. It's going to impact your actions. It's going to impact your attire. It's going to impact your activities. This, this one principle has a widespread application. You may have the proper dress on, but your attitude reeks. You're so proud of your standards. I mentioned that last week. Some of the worst sinners we had in our church are people that had the highest standards and they were mean about it. I had a man come to our church and I'll never forget this. You wonder where preachers get their stories. We had a visitor come in one Sunday, had a wife and a slew of kids. They were all teenagers, some young adults. They followed him like little minions. And he came up to me after the service and he said, Pastor, I really loved your services today. But your music is worldly. I said, well, maybe this isn't the church for you. Because I don't see anything worldly about it. It was Southern Gospel just so that you understand. We don't have worldly music unless you don't like Southern gospel. But in our churches today, we've made music a God. 
rather than using music in our worship to God. And so he came from a, a college, a church that emphasized excellence, which I also enjoy and like. I just don't think it's the only music that pleases God. If God says make a joyful noise, a noise is not usually very pretty to hear to us. But if it comes from the right heart, God's enjoying it. Now, you might want to teach them how to sing better than just noisily. But if they got a joyful heart, don't jump all over them and say, you vile, wicked sinner, you. Who are you trying to glorify God? And the people that usually talk like that have attitudes that are just totally opposite of what the New Testament speaks of. He said to me, your music is worldly. I said, well, maybe this isn't the church for you. He said, well, I think you can probably figure it out. You're, you're a preacher. You, you probably know that I have the gift of prophecy. I have the gift of the prophet, referring to Romans. And, you know, I don't know this guy. This is his first visit. But his whole attitude just caught me off guard. And so I hope it was in the spirit. It may have been in the flesh. I don't know. But I looked at him and I said, sir, when people tell me that, that usually means they're self-centered, egotistical, arrogant, mean-spirited, that their wife can hardly stand to be around and the children can't wait to get out of their house. And the kids nearly busted out laughing. And he said, well, I hope I wasn't offensive. I said, likewise. And I'm just using him as an example because he actually turned out to be a really good church member. He just hadn't had anyone help, help him along with humility. But you'd be surprised how many of those kind of people are in our kind of churches because the emphasis is all on the outside, not on the inside. Now, if you're right on the inside, it's eventually going to show on the outside. And like I said in the introduction, if you're truly trying to live a holy life, you will want to build standards. Not because you have to, but because you want to. You get tired of confessing the same thing over and over. You genuinely inside are grieved over your sin. You genuinely want to have victory over. And not just victory, but a life without it. And that's why the standard. Then the third standard. I don't have time to let you guys talk because I'm already talking too long. And too. So here's the third principle. The principle of affection, which really is one that summarizes all of them when you think about it. Jesus said unto them, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. Colossians 3, 2 says, Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. And this principle of affection says, My love, my allegiance, my desires will be first devoted to my Lord and my God. Whatever he wants that's what I want. And if there's ever another want to and it conflicts with what he wants, 
I'm yielding what I would want for him because I love him most. I love him more than myself. These principles, they all overlap, but this one might be the most important. And I'll give you the three blanks to fill in because some of you won't be able to sleep tonight unless they're filled in. What's that look like? You can study it yourself tonight out of 1 John chapter 5. You're going to love God's Christ. You're going to love Jesus. You're not going to be ashamed of Jesus. You're going to love Jesus. Just the name of Jesus will bring a tear to your eye or a, a warmth of joy in your heart. Jesus is everything. Jesus is the sweetest name I know. Secondly, you will love God's children. That's why we love one another. And please let me remind you, because some of you are thinking of some of those people that say they're saved, but you just wonder if they're saved, and so you want to find an exemption or loophole not to love them. Love them has nothing to do with your feelings. Love is action. That's why you're told to love your enemies. You don't love what they do. You love their soul. You love them. So what do you do? You do something good to them. You do something good for them. That's what love is. It's action. It's doing good. For God so loved the world that he gave. He did something good. Just, you can see it there. It's hard. Our our, our relationships are messed up because of unfulfilled expectations. Think of Mary and Martha. They got in a fuss. Martha's all upset because Mary wasn't working in the kitchen with her. She just wanted to go and worship Jesus, (laughs) which is hilarious to me for me to think of that scene. And so what, what was the problem there? Unfulfilled expectations. That happens so much in marriages. That happens so much in, in families. That happens a lot in churches. Unfulfilled expectations. Envy can mess up a relationship. Look at Cain and Abel and Joseph's ten brothers, the, the, the older brother of the prodigal son. Uh, Peter <clears throat> envied John's destiny. Some relationships are strained because of, his, because of exhaustion. Elijah complained that he's the only one faithful. And God said, there's a whole bunch of others out there that are living for the Lord. Sometimes there's emptiness. All those are problems. All these are worth a further study. And then thirdly, if we're going to love God, we're going to love his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. Now, folks, I crammed a lot in tonight, and I, I may have actually injured the lesson rather than helped. But I did give a disclaimer when I said, when I got started, remember? I flattered you. I said, you're a, a good group of people to teach, the cream of the crop. And so hopefully you'll have the ability, if you desire, to read the references here. I included the notes. Someone told me today they thanked me, thanked me for the notes. And I said, I do that for a reason. One, so that I can have your attention because I ramble a lot and it's good rambling. It's explanation. But I I don't want you to be tied to your note sheet. And I also want to make sure that I don't get misquoted because people that are looking for a loophole to live in sin, 
they'll quote one phrase of what I said. He said, standards are man-made. I don't need that. Uh, you didn't hear it all. You're just lifting out a phrase. And so anytime I teach, I want to make sure. And then also I want to have enough material for the serious student when they want to have devotions or they want extra time and study, they have something to work with other than just what they wrote down. Does that make sense? I hope it was a help. We're 809. Forgive me for being overtime tonight. Let's stand to our feet and...